Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 129, and today we'll be chatting with Daniel Beauchamp, the head of virtual reality at Shopify. Daniel has been passionate about technology and developing video games since his early teens. While taking an entrepreneurship class in university and realizing that he could build a company of his own, Daniel worked with classmates to build their first startup. After working on that startup for a bit, they eventually joined Shopify. Over the past seven years, Daniel has been leading all kinds of projects and initiatives within the company, heading up the internal tools team and working on other projects like Open Data Ottawa. Daniel spent his spare time exploring VR technologies. He became so passionate about them that he decided he needed to be working on it full time. He then pitched Toby, the CEO of Shopify, on why they should be investing in VR and now heads up their team working on this exciting technology. Daniel joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, why he's so passionate about VR, how he helped create the Shopify VR platform, how he thinks about and sees the future of VR evolving, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hack to start drop us an email at hey at hacktostart.com or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review, good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Daniel. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. We're super excited to have you on and to get to hear about all the cool things that uh, you've been working on uh, at Shopify and, and with the VR apps. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, so I'm originally from Montreal, but uh, about 10 years or so ago, I moved to Ottawa and I studied uh, software engineering at UOttawa. I guess I have the same sort of story as like many tech geeks out there and many programmers where it's like from a very young age, just like hacking away at things, making little like cool tech tech things, programming away. Gaming has been a huge focus for me. So just like making little games originally was in Flash, then moved on to like OpenGL, C++ stuff, and just a real love of just computer games, making stuff. And so software engineering just seemed pretty obvious to, to go into. That's awesome. So where did that passion for tech and entrepreneurship come from for you? Once again, one of those like classic tales of like your parents buy you a computer when you're really young and then you're just like three years old, like typing into like a DOS prompt being like, oh, like what do these things do? And then just like falling in love uh, with this, this stuff. I was also like a teenager in like the age of like Flash, like the golden ages of Flash where like Flash games were, were all the rage. And, and then it was like, just this passion of wanting to figure out how things worked. So it was like looking at some cool game that was online and being like, how did they do this? And then like getting a quote unquote legal copy of Flash and just (laughs) playing around with stuff like that. And then, yeah, just the passion grows from there, right? So when I got to university or maybe a bit before then, I was like really getting into like 3D programming. I had bought a whole bunch of books on like OpenGL and I was kind of going away from like the Flash kind of like typical 2D game to like more 3D stuff. And then I found that the roadblock there was that distributing the games were really challenging. Like there was no way to run like native 3D content on the web. So it was like, oh, here, let me zip up this like executable file and send it to you. And that was like 
real sketchy at the time. Just like you go on MSN being like, hey, you want to like test out this game I'm building? Like send like suspiciousfile.exe. Like it was, it wasn't uh, like the distribution platform kind of wasn't there for like an indie dev. So then I was, I was kind of bummed at that. And that's kind of what drove me to web programming and web development. It was like, hey, wait a minute. Like I can kind of like not do, I can still like program really cool stuff, but I can build on the web. And then at like a few clicks, a, a few buttons, like it'll actually be online that anyone can access it. The unfortunate thing though, is it wasn't games anymore. This was just going to be like web pages and like web services and stuff like that. But that kind of started me on this whole curious quest of, you know, how does the web work? How do web apps work? Like databases and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of how I got in, in, into web programming. Yeah, that's really cool. So continuing on that path, out of school, you end up launching a startup called AV2. Can you tell us a bit more about this company and what motivated you to start it? So that was actually started out of an entrepreneurship course at uh, Ottawa. So I was just like so tech focused. I just wanted to build tech for the rest of my life, work at some big company like, oh, I'll go work for Microsoft and I'll just be like building like cool stuff. And this entrepreneurship course kind of taught us like, wait a minute, like, if you really love building stuff, you can like actually sell that stuff to people. And you don't need to be working for someone else. Like you can actually create value for other people and kind of market that. And like, then you, you become what's known as an entrepreneur. And, and the, this course was just like, really eye opening. Like I saw this and was like, Oh, my goodness, like, this is what I want to do. So it was myself and two other um, classmates from, from that class who got together and built this, this startup called a V2. Now, what it was is, to, to kind of keep it short, it was, it was kind of a self-serve ad platform. So right now, if you want to advertise on the web, you normally go through these big ad networks like DoubleClick and like Google Ads and all that, where you kind of just like throw your ads into this like algorithm and like your ads will just kind of like show up on various places around the web. That's fine for like a lot of advertisers, but then there's like a lot of publishers who they want to have control of what's on their site and they don't want some algorithm determining what shows up in their ad spots. And so these are larger publishers and they actually have things in place where it's like, no, you contact us, tell us what you want to put, the timeline you want to do it on. The thing is the tooling for that's really shitty. It would be this like email chain of like, oh, what dates do you want it for? Okay, what's the artwork you have? All right, send it to us. Oh, actually, this artwork's not right. Okay, can you send it in this format? Okay, and there's just like all this back and forth. So this was like this kind of platform where people could directly see the spots that are available, just kind of like book, book time slot, ad starts here, ad stops here, here's the graphic, here's my credit card, pay for it right there, and everything was just handled. So that's something we were working on. And at the time, we were actually incubating out of Shopify. So this is now like seven years ago or something. We were at the Shopify offices. Shopify was still very small at that point. It was probably about 30 people. And it was just like the three of us out of V2 incubating in there. And at one point, the CEO of Shopify just kind of comes up to us and says, like, hey, listen, guys, like your product's really cool. But like I see the passion you guys have for tech and like your vision and all that. And I think it'd be super beneficial for you to join Shopify instead. And we're like, no way, like we're gonna see this till like we're millionaires slash billionaires. And the next day our, uh, like our head of marketing and other co-founder leaves to Shopify. <laughs> and it's like, oh damn it. Like we were supposed to like hold the line, stick together and like stay on with the V2 dream. Um, but so, so that, yeah, uh, that kind of fell apart. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to join Shopify then. 
And it was actually good that I did it because one thing I did realize in running my own startup was really you should only do your own startup if you love what you're doing and you truly believe in your product. In our case, we were doing this like self-serve ad platform. I'm not a huge fan of ads. I wasn't in love with the product. To me, it was more like, oh, this is a cool tech challenge. And like, yeah, this will help some people. But like, at the end of the day, it wasn't what was driving my life to be like, yes, I must make the ad world better for everyone. So I kind of, not say that I burnt out on entrepreneurship, but I just kind of went like, well, I would only want my own startup if I actually really love what I'm doing. And right now I can't really think of something that I'm like so passionate about that I want to be starting a company about that. So that was kind of like when I hung up the entrepreneurship hat and became just a, a, a software developer at Shopify. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree that it's important to work on something that you're completely passionate about. So you ended up joining Shopify as one of the first 30 or so employees. Can you tell us a bit more about what it was like joining a team at that stage? It it was amazing. I mean, what was nice is you were already joining a company that had like a very clear vision that had tons of great people there to mentor you. And like, while I was doing this, my own startup, it's, it's kind of scary, right? Where you're, you're there, you don't have too many people to kind of like turn to and be like, what should we do here? Like I was the CTO of that company, but it's like, so there's like no one above me to say like, hey, is this a good idea to do this? Whereas at Shopify, now I, I had this support network that, oh, I'm working on some code Well, I'll get like three or four devs to look at it and share their opinions on it. So it was just like, as far as the personal development point of view goes, it, it was perfect for that. The joining a company that's around 50 people, I think that's just like a great size. Yeah, like you know everyone there. Yeah, like you just feel like this this big family. It's when you see Shopify grow to, you know, 50 to 100 people, then 100 people to 200 people, and then suddenly you're like, oh, actually, I don't know everyone's name. And like when someone joins the company at that point, it's no longer this kind of like, yeah, cool, like everyone threw a party, like we have another employee. It kind of just becomes like, oh, yeah, cool, like you joined, like congratulations. And now as we're a company of like over a 1,000 people and we have several offices, it's like, oh, like you work at Shopify? Oh, I work there too. Like, nice meeting you. And like, meanwhile, they've worked at the company for like two years and you've just never met them. So joining in the early days was pretty magical. The nice thing is that throughout the years, even though we've grown in numbers and even though I can't know everyone here, like our culture has pretty much stayed the same where it feels like just this great open company, not a lot of like bullshit in politics in here. Like, Everyone just kind of gets along. You still have these like amazing like support networks in there for like, personal development and growth and all of that. So yeah, it's been kind of a fun journey to see it uh, evolve throughout the years. So before we dive deeper in those kinds of things, I wanted to explore some of the other cool projects you had the chance to work on and build. So you helped create an open source project called Dashin and then later helped start a group called Open Data Ottawa. Can you tell us a bit more about both of these projects and why you got involved? Yeah, so earlier when I said I I hung up my entrepreneurial hat, um, it was true. But the nice thing is that when you're inside a company, you can still be an entrepreneur. And and I guess a lot of people call that intrapreneurship. So it's where you're creating projects within uh, the company, but you're also acting like an owner. So you're building this little thing out, but like you own it and you want to see it through and it's your vision and everything. And so Dashing was one of those products where I was actually working on the internal tools team, building, like, essentially just looking at the company from, from the inside and going like, okay, what tools could make us better? So if it meant like our 
our support gurus, let's say, were finding it really cumbersome to sift through support tickets and to like answer calls and like when a call comes in to associate that number with like the the actual merchant who's calling and like their store and all that. That's where my internal tools team would kind of step in and go like, let's build something around that. And then like, oh, we're like our expensing software, like it needed all these like tweaks. It's like, all right, let's optimize that. And dashing, what, what what it is, is it's a, it's a framework for building dashboards and like, uh, yeah, information dashboards. And it was at a time in Shopify where we didn't have a lot of metrics visible to people. And so if people were learning about terms like KPI for the first time and like things of like, what are the metrics that actually matter for a project to be successful? And even if they knew those metrics, they weren't re- readily visible to the team. So we wanted to kind of have these dashboards across all the teams visible on TVs that people could just look at and get all the info they need about the important metrics. And so dashing was this open source tool for for building stuff like that. And the reason it was open source, like Shopify is very much on board uh, with open source. I mean, Shopify is built on Ruby on Rails, which is uh, a massive open source project. And you know, open source just kind of helps the whole community by having everyone just like working on it, submitting bug fixes, um, yeah, giving their opinions on it and everything. And it kind of like grows um, with the community. And and so when we build projects internally at Shopify, well, we think, well, can we give back in any way? Can we open source this? And by open sourcing it, it will actually get better than if we just kept it internally and kept it all to ourselves. So dashing, uh, we open sourced it. And I... I thought it would just get like, you know, a few hundred users here and there. Like any open source project I had done till that point was just like very, very small. And it was kind of like, yeah, who, who cares about the stuff that I'm releasing? But for some reason, it just like blew up on the internet. Like it got to front page of Hacker, Hacker News and just like a bunch of people started using it. And then I started freaking out because you, you don't realize how much work an open source project is until it gets really popular when you have like hundreds and hundreds of people emailing you and submitting issues and being like, when's this feature coming? When's this? And you kind of get a bit stressed out because then you're like, well, they're not paying me to do this stuff, but they expect so much from me. And they'll get angry too if I don't add this feature in time. They're like, oh, why are you guys so lazy and not adding this? You're like, wait a minute, like we're giving you this thing for free. Like if you just... If you really want that feature so bad, the way open source works is why don't you just like add it yourself and then we can like merge it into the project. So it kind of uh, surprised me at how popular it got. Uh, It was really, really fun to see it get that popular. But then, yeah, just it's the stress of dealing with large open source projects that, that was very surprising to me. Oh, and then I guess you had asked about Open Data Ottawa. So, yeah, at the time I was doing uh, dashing, I was just getting really obsessed with like numbers and dashboards and data and all that. So there was this kind of movement starting around the world around open data. And, and the concept of it was there's a lot of data out there. It's, governments have like a lot of data that should be kind of open to the public so that people can use that data in different ways, either for visualizations or for building apps. And that that could actually be like a a really powerful way for governments to essentially get more things built on top of this data. So I think it's best if I kind of give an example. Let's say, so the city of Ottawa has uh, locations of all the water fountains in town, and they also have the locations of all the bike paths in town. Well, 
you can get that information through like probably some map you download online. But what the Open Data Ottawa group was trying to get was like, please give us that data in its raw form. So like, give us like the name of the fountain and it's like latitude and longitude coordinates. And that might not be useful for everybody. For most people, they probably want it on a map. But what I can do once I have that data is I can choose to visualize it however I want. And I can mash that data up with other data sets. So I can take the water fountain data and I can take the bike data and I can mash that together into this app that you can now have on your phone that's kind of like, you know, how to optimize your bike trip so that you stay hydrated at the same time or stuff like that. And so there's really cool stuff you can do once you start getting these raw data sets and combining them together. And if you waited for the city to build something like that, I mean, the way government goes is it would probably take like five years and it would be like $2 million over budget and like people wouldn't be happy with it. But you release this stuff out to the public. Well, now hackers like me, and I use hackers in like the correct term of just like tech enthusiasts who just want to take stuff and just like tinker with it and come up with cool things, can build stuff on top of that data that no one could have predicted. So like the government just releases this stuff and like they don't know what people are going to do with it. And like there's not much harmful stuff you can do with like the location of water fountains. So like most likely you're just going to be getting a whole bunch of cool applications built on top of it. One of them actually being we we got OC Transpo to release all their bus data in, in terms of like where buses are in real time. Now if you look on the App Store, you'll find several apps that will will show you, you know, where is my bus at this exact time and like you see it on a little map moving around. Like that wouldn't have been possible had they just kept all that data internally. Like they probably would have released their own little app and it might have been kind of crappy, but by exposing that to everyone, then you have a bunch of different apps that, that have different functionalities that kind of, um, you know, that can, that can work for everyone. Wow, it's really cool to hear about how data can be turned into useful apps by all types of developers and that you guys, you know, helped lay that foundation to make these types of things possible, not only in our city, but potentially around the world, you know, by serving as examples. So you also mentioned that you joined Shopify about seven years ago, and today you're the head of virtual reality. So how did the VR team come about, and why was it something that you guys were even thinking about sort of internally? Yeah, so when I mentioned before, like my passion was in gaming, and the roadblock there was that I couldn't do 3D gaming on the web. That roadblock was there until, I think it's like five years ago maybe, when this technology called WebGL came out. And what it was is a way to do native 3D graphics programming inside your browser, all powered with JavaScript. So at this point, it was like, holy crap, I can actually do 3D stuff right in the browser. So it's the stuff that I like. I loved OpenGL. I love 3D stuff. So I'm like, finally, I can do that. And at that point, I was getting really good with web technologies and JavaScript and stuff like that. And really, really loved JavaScript. I'm like, wait a minute. Now this is like, you're putting together two of the things I love the most and I can now actually do like 3D games on the web. So that was like really, really cool. So although I was still doing web development and like some data stuff at Shopify, on my spare time, I was just playing around a ton with doing 3D stuff on the web. And that got me kind of back into gaming again and I started looking at you know, the, the game engines that were coming out at the time, uh, like Unity and then later Unreal Engine. And 
it was about two and a half years ago when the the new wave of VR started again. So this is you know the, the fourth time or something where VR is is trying to get popular and everyone's getting hyped about it. So I started looking at it when it was the Oculus Rift DK1, and I was like, oh wow, like this is actually like really really cool and way better than it was you know 15 years ago when I would have tried it at like Disney World in like these like real archaic rough simulations where you put this really clunky helmet on and it looks like really crappy graphics but now it's like wait a minute like this thing is like really really good so I started just playing around with VR and game development on my spare time while still doing Shopify stuff but at a certain point and this was about a year and a half ago I go you know what VR is the future like the Oculus Rift DK2 just came out is even better than the DK1 and I said this is it like I this is what I want to be doing. And going back to, you know, what I said before of like, I didn't want to do my own startup until there was something I was passionate about. Well, VR became that passion. And I just fell in love with it and was obsessed with it. Like, that's all I could think of. I would like go to work, come home and then just build VR experiences. And I loved it because I, I realized that, oh, damn, like I actually have like a huge passion for this. I'm like, well, and I had been at Shopify for quite some time. I'm like, well, you know what? Maybe I should leave Shopify and do my own VR startup. Like, now's the time to get into VR. Now, before it just explodes and then, like, the market's flooded and you have no opportunity to kind of, like, have your stuff seen. So I was kind of, like, set on that. I'm like, I'm going to leave Shopify. I'm going to do my own VR stuff. But then I kind of thought about it some more. And I said, well, wait a minute. Like, at Shopify, we're always pushing people to, like, do what they love. And if there's a certain project that they want to work on, to just like champion that and like get it done. So I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to just create this really awesome pitch for our CEO showing why why Shopify should have a VR team and why I should be running it. And so I did that, presented it to the CEO. He loved it and said like, yes, let's do this. What really worked in my favor was that he also really loves VR. Like he was one of the first people to back the Oculus Rift DK1 and like he thinks VR is the future. So when I like went and chatted with him, I didn't have to like convince him on both like why VR is cool and then why I should be doing a VR team. I just like I had the easy job of just kind of being like, hey, listen, I know you love VR. I love VR. And like this thing's going to be the future. So like it just makes sense for us to, to start doing VR stuff. So that's kind of how, how it all started. That's an amazing story that you were able to take that to Toby and, you know, just make it happen like that. So how have you approached building the VR platform and what's that process been like for you? I would say we're still building it. This past year has been very much about exploration, experimentation, like throwing stuff on the wall, seeing what sticks. And what we've built in the past year, well, first it was just, yeah, researching a whole bunch of the technologies that, that could apply to commerce. And we kind of built some proof of concepts around what the e-commerce uh, and VR experience could look like. Now, for a lot of people, when I say e-commerce and VR, the first thing they think about is like 3D malls. It's like this idea that you put on a headset and you're in a shopping mall and you're walking around and you're looking at products and you're going from store to store. And to that, not to say I'm like disappointed by that like vision, but it's like, okay, let's think about it here. You put a VR headset on and like you are like a god essentially. Like you can be anywhere you want, be anyone you want, do anything you want. Like you can materialize things at your fingertips. And like with that power, like do you really want it to be like shopping at like just like a, a regular virtual shopping mall? Like probably not. VR is 
like here, here's actually a really good example. Let's say you're shopping for a tent and you want to do it in virtual reality from the comfort of your own home. Would you rather be in a virtual representation of a camping store with, you know, like the fluorescent lights and, and just like rows upon rows of stuff and you just look like you're in a regular store? Or would you rather feel like you are on the mountain or in the forest where you're actually going to be camping and all the stuff around you is all, you know, the tent and the gear that you need is all around you and you feel like you're, you're in a more, um, you feel like you're actually in the experience. And so there we realize that uh, VR is really a, the first medium where brands can actually put people in the stories that their products tell. And so that's like really, really powerful. So we have to kind of like leave behind our, our, our this notion of like it's a, it's a physical mall and think about like, okay, well, what would this experience actually look like? And then there's the other side of it that goes, all right, well, is it beneficial to have all types of products in VR? And we, we don't really think so. Because like, let's say if I'm selling you a pencil, or I'm selling you a mug or a water bottle, I can show you a photo of that and you'll have a pretty good idea of what it looks like. But for stuff like a bike, a couch, a tent, a car, anything of scale, like anything where the size of the object actually comes into play of whether or not you want to buy the thing, that's where VR can really help. Because when you put on a VR headset, you would see that tent or that bike as it looks in real life at the correct size. And you'll say, oh, well, that's perfect. And like you can like walk inside the tent and look around and go like, yep, this is great. It will fit you know, my, uh, my, my dogs, my family, my favorite cooler, like this is great. And so those types of pro- products, products that where, where scale matters, those are, are ones where like VR can really help out. Because otherwise you're saying, well, why would someone want to use VR when it's way more convenient to just take out their phone and just browse a store on their phone or browse it on their laptop? Like why should someone invest the time and money to like get a good VR headset? and try this out. So those are kind of like the things we've identified and we've been experimenting around that. And this coming year is all about that platform integration. It's about how can we enable our merchants and our partners to take advantage of VR and have that all seamlessly tied into their, their Shopify store. So that's, that's what you can kind of look forward to in, uh, in 2017. Wow, that's really cool to hear and definitely something we'll have to stay tuned, you know, closely to see how it unfolds. So given the exploration that you've done with the different development kits and technologies, can you share what the current spectrum of technology is like and what you like most about each, you know, technology in itself? So we've tried all of them. On on one end, you have, let's say, the Google Cardboard, where it's this simple piece of cardboard with two little lenses in it that you take your phone, you put it in this little cardboard box, and you look through the lenses, and you see this like little VR experience. And you all you can do is you can move your head around from side to side or up and down. You can't move like move your body around and like walk around, but you're just kind of like rotating your head and for the most part, the experiences that show up on there are like the 360 photo, 360 video stuff. That's mostly what you'll find on, on for the Google Cardboard. The good thing about the Cardboard, though, is it's like $2 or something. You can get like you can get even cheaper if you like really order a lot of them. But you can like get these headsets, brand them because it's just like a piece of Cardboard. So you can have your logo all over it, send it to all, all your customers, give them away at some event or at a conference. And it's like, yay, like everyone has VR, like woohoo. But 
the thing is the experiences kind of suck. Like I've yet to like show someone a, a Google Cardboard experience and like have them like take it off and go like, wow, the future is here. Like for a lot of people, they'll be like, oh, this is like really cool, but it's just gimmicky cool. Like they wouldn't, if you ask them like, oh, and would you use this to shop or would you use it? And they'd be like, uh, no, probably not. And, and so not to say that like tarnishes VR, like it just doesn't, it doesn't get people excited in the same way that higher end experiences do. So on the other side of the spectrum, you have, let's say the HTC Vive and you have the Oculus Rift. So those experiences, how they differ from the cardboard is when you put an HTC Vive on, not only can you look around, but you can also walk around. So you can be walking around the room you're in, you can be crouching down, lying down, jumping around. Like you feel like you are there and you can fully explore the space. And what makes it even better is you also have these hand controllers where you can now start interacting with objects. So in some apps, you can draw in 3D. So you can take these these hand controllers and you're drawing, you know, fire and laser beams and rainbows all around you. And like it is just a magical experience. In other experiences, you can pick stuff up. There's like a you could pick up a bow and arrow and feel like you're actually shooting this bow and arrow or put, or if it, in a shopping experience you could pick up you know a handbag and and open it up look inside and kind of like spin it around and feel like you can kind of um inspect any uh, part of this object and those are the experiences where someone tries it they take off the headset and they go like holy shit like i had no idea that vr was this far along and so if we want there to be a future for VR, and if, for us, if we want there to be a future for e-commerce and VR, people need to have those reactions to go like, you know what, I need to buy one of these. Or like, you know what, this, this is so, so cool. Like, I, I can't wait to see what it's going to look like in a year, two years, and five years, and just be really on board with that. Versus the cardboard stuff where they're just kind of like, ah, okay, yeah, this, this is kind of neat. So that's the problem with VR right now is that it's a see it to believe it technology. So like anyone even listening to this podcast right now who has not tried an HTC Vive, they won't really get how cool VR is. Like you need to see it to believe it. I could be on here for five hours explaining every single experience, how cool it is and how amazing and like groundbreaking it is. But like, until you try it, you don't realize how good it is. Like a lot of people equate it to like, oh, it's just like going to a movie and seeing it in like 3D, like and like, oh, 3D movies give me a headache. It's nothing like that. Like a 3D movie, it feels like there's this like 2D plane in front of you and some of the stuff like pops out. In VR, you feel like you are there. Like there is an environment all around you and you can look around and inspect it and explore and all of that. So long story short, the HTC Vive stuff and the Oculus Rift, like that's, those are the magical experiences in VR. The challenges are, well, not a lot of people have these headsets. Like, yes, they are consumer available, but they are expensive, right? They're going to run you $800 for just the headset. Then you need a powerful PC to run it. So not a lot of people are going to have it. So how are people going to be able to try this out? Well, either it's going to be at like pop-up shops or conferences or just like venues where they can go to to experience it. Or what's going to have to happen is that the, the mobile options like uh, Google Daydream, Google Cardboard, the Samsung Gear VR, those things need to just get better and have stuff like positional tracking that will allow people to walk around and feel fully immersed in a space versus just kind of rotating their head around and getting kind of a gimmicky experience. 
Yeah, for sure. Or the cost of hardware, you know, will continue to drop or something until it reaches like the price of a console or, or something like that. Yeah, you're exactly right on that. And like stuff like the headsets need to become uh, you know, lighter, more comfortable, wireless. So like the, the HTC Vive has like wires all over the place. And like, yeah, it's, you get used to it, but you're like, wow, this would be really nice if it was a bit more comfortable and wireless. So where do you see VR continuing to evolve in the next few years? And I know we haven't talked you know, much about it yet, but where does augmented reality fit in here in, in your opinion? What's important to kind of note is just how fast the VR industry is moving. Like I told you that I got into it when it was like the uh, Oculus Rift DK1. And when it was the DK1, it was the experiences kind of like Google Cardboard. It was you put this thing on and the only thing you can do is rotate your head. Like you couldn't walk around. You didn't have hand controllers. It was pretty basic. And I fell in love with it at that point, And I'm like, this is pretty cool. Then DK2 comes out. Now you you have positional tracking. You can like look under the table. You can like walk around. Like wow, this is really cool. And that was in a span of like three years or something. The Vive came out in April, and when that came out, it was the first headset that came out that had hand controllers. And to just compare how far it had gotten in those two years, it was mind blowing. So. Where I think it's heading is like this train isn't stopping. And if you go to any of the conferences or if you're following anything about VR, you realize just the stuff that's in the pipeline and the stuff that's coming out is just like within next year, VR is going to feel different than what it feels like now. Within five years, I mean, I can't even imagine how great it's going to be. So where it's heading is, you know, there's a lot of hype right now and a lot of people just being like, oh, VR is the future and all that. And yeah, okay, I'm giving into that hype a little bit. I do firmly believe that it is going to be like a um, a real important part of of our society within the next few years. Yeah, like it is just going, growing really, really fast. So a lot of people jumping on board. I'm really happy to see companies jump on board. It's just a matter of like, we have to make sure that for this to actually survive, it can't just be for the hype. Like it can't just be jump on, make a, cool, a few cool like marketing videos and like 360 videos and be like, cool, like we did VR. It's like, no, like you have to think about like, why does someone want to use this headset? What's going to keep them coming back to it? Like what's in it for them? And if everyone's kind of addressing those problems, then I think VR has like a, a real definite future. Now you mentioned AR. And so AR augmented reality is really important as well. And in some cases, it's going to be more important than virtual reality. So the concept of AR, you put on these like goggles or glasses and you see the real world in front of you as you do in real life, but you augment it with virtual objects. So there's no couch in front of you in real life, but what you're seeing is this like beautiful couch in front of you that you can move around and get a, a feel for, for not only how big it is, but how it fits in your space. And that's going to be way more handy for that specific application in commerce than doing it in VR where it doesn't have the model of your house in there. So you're kind of just like looking at this couch in 3D, but you don't see your house around it. So, so AR is going to be pretty important going forward. My dream scenario, and I think where we are going to be headed, is there's going to be some cases where you want to do VR instead of AR, right? Like if I wanted to explore what Pluto looks like or what Mars looks like, I don't want to see Mars in my living room. I want to feel like I'm on Mars. So like everything that I'm seeing would be virtual. 
But then, like I said, that shopping example, well, I would actually want to see some real elements and then some parts that are virtual. And the ability to essentially dial in how much of reality remains and how much is virtual is that's where like these headsets, it's no longer going to be like AR versus VR. It's going to be one thing where, yeah, you just kind of have that dial of saying like, oh, yeah, this experience is 100% virtual and this experience is like 50% virtual. Oh, this one's 10%. And you can kind of like pick and choose how much of the real world you want to keep around you. That's really, really cool. And I think that's where the industry as a whole is going to be headed. So do you think apps like Pokemon Go or, you know, I think Ikea had uh, an early, you know, type of AR app where you could look through your cell phone and see sort of the furniture in your living room. Do you think those are good, like early indicators of where this space is headed? So with AR, like I tend to separate like what Pokemon Go was with the vision of like you put on goggles and like you when you're looking at stuff through your cell phone, just like holding it in front of you, that's not super immersive. It's like you're looking at some like photo of the thing. For it to be really immersive, it should you shouldn't have to use your hands to hold up this thing. You should just be standing naturally looking somewhere and wow, there's like this object that isn't there in real life, but it sure as hell looks like it is there. And like that's where true AR is going to be, where it's like hands-free, you have this headset like like the, the Magic Leap or like HoloLens or whatever is coming out that, that will enable it to like, you just kind of put it on, you just forget about the fact that you're wearing something and it feels like all these things are around you and not like you're just walking around with this phone and just like seeing this like kind of shitty graphics overlaid on top of your phone screen. Yeah, that's a great distinction to make. So what's your day-to-day role like and sort of what's next for the VR team? Yeah, so day-to-day role, this is where I kind of struggle with uh, my inner desire to just be coding all the time, to just like be on top of every single like technology that's out there. And although I have been mostly just been coding on the VR team for the past year, now I need to start, you know, yeah, merchant relationships and like dealing with that and like dealing with strategy, dealing with vision and being in a lot of meetings and not always being at my desk, being able to code. And that's kind of tough to do when you are like a very technical person. And now you're taking this kind of like product manager role. So my my role is shifting towards more of that kind of product manager thing where I am kind of laying the foundations down, still being involved with the tech uh, where I like staying on top of all of it, but not necessarily being in like the you know, the nitty gritty details of implementation. And, and so, yeah, right now it's just a lot of just planning for the future, dealing with our, our merchants, dealing with partners who are excited about this tech and who want to experiment with this early on to see where it goes. And so that's kind of what the uh, the day to day is. So what are some of the most recent apps or VR apps that you've downloaded or used lately? Shortly after the, the HTC Vive was launched, there was this thing called uh, The Lab. It was produced by by Valve, the makers of Half-Life, and also the the people who partnered with, with HTC to build this um, VR headset. They built this thing called The Lab, a series of little experiments um, and experiences around VR. And one of those was like this bow and arrow demo where you pick up a bow and you pick up an arrow in the other hand, and, and this is all just virtual objects, but you're holding these like hand controllers. And when you like put the arrow, like you kind of like notch it in like the bowstring and you pull back, the thing is that the, the hand controller actually rumbles at a different frequency as you pull it further back. So your brain actually thinks that like there's tension there when really there isn't any. 
and it is like such a trippy experience because like you're like wait I'm not holding a bow, but it feels like I am. And it just feels so, so right. And you like let go of the arrow and you see it like fly exactly how you would expect an arrow to fly. And it's just like, holy shit, this is pretty, this is pretty rad. And, and it's kind of like this little tower defense game where these little guys are storming your castle and you're just shooting them with a bow. And you just feel like Katniss from Hunger Games. You're just like, or like Legolas, you're just like, pew, pew, headshot. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just like, you get so tired doing it, which is also fun because it's like the first time I ever did a game where I'm just like sweating by the end of it and like felt like I was actually there doing it. So it wasn't like a, you know, dance dance revolution or some connect game where it just feels like I'm just like moving around like an idiot for no reason. Here it was like, no, I'm I'm defending a castle. Like I am there. I am shooting these little guys with a bow and arrow. And the strangest thing about VR is like you'll take off the headset. And when you think back at that experience later on, you don't remember it like you were playing a game. Like you remember it like you were there. Because I guess that's how the way memories work and a lot of it is visual and it's just kind of like, oh yeah, like I was totally on that tower shooting those those dudes. And like for sure you know like you weren't actually there, but your memories feel like you were. And it, that is a very trippy thing. So that was like the first app where I, I really felt the presence and full immersion into VR. And lately I've been playing this game called Climby. Silly game. It's still in like alpha development on Steam. And essentially you're just climbing around like these like obstacles and trying to like get to, you know, from point A to point B and, you know, jumping from like little like rock to rock. But the magical thing about it is that it's multiplayer and there aren't that many VR multiplayer apps out there right now. And I think the reason for that is because as a developer, you need to make money to survive. And if you look at the market size and you go like, all right, well, I'm building this like VR game and like hopefully people are going to download it. If it's like multiplayer only or if a large portion of it's multiplayer, you're like, oh, well, there's already not that many headsets out there. How many of those people will actually have friends that they want to play with? Like, will there actually be a player base for this thing? And so not, not many people are, are getting into multiplayer games yet. But that, I think, is where the future of VR is going to be. It's going to be a very social platform. Like So many people think that it's this antisocial thing. You put on a headset and you block out the world. And you're like, sure, yes, you are blocking out the real world. But you are entering a new world, one where your friends can join. And you can do pretty amazing things. Like if you and I, instead of having this chat just like over Skype, could be on the moon building like some cool space fort together and just like shooting the shit about VR, like, that would be pretty awesome. And if the listeners could just kind of like come in and like hang out with us and like see this like awesome space fortress we built together, it's like, wow, that would be like really, really cool. So that's where like social VR is going to be huge in terms of entertainment, watching movies with friends or, or, or hanging out with friends or shopping with friends, you know, education stuff, like magic school bus style of like, hey, let's go check out what like Mars looks like and like hop in this like magic virtual bus and like there, there we all are like exploring it as a class together. Like that's what excites me so, so much about VR. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds so cool. I mean, you can just hear the passion that you have, you know, just talking about it. And I mean, I can't even wait to see what that looks like when, when it does get here. It's close. Like it's, 
it's really, really close. I, for some people, they'll be a bit like disappointed if they go out and buy a headset and they're like, oh, like where are all those multiplayer experiences? But like they're in development right now. And like Climby is in alpha development, but I still love playing it, even though there's bugs here and there. It's like I see where this is going and I fully support it and cannot wait. So do you have any recommendations on some great content that you've come across lately, either books or videos or blog posts? Yeah, actually, before I answer that, there is something really, really cool that I don't think I've touched upon, and that's something called WebVR. Before I kind of mentioned about WebGL being this way of doing 3D graphics on the web and me getting really, really excited about that, when I got into the VR space, the problem is like you couldn't do VR content on the web. So once again, I was stuck in this kind of like land where if I wanted people to try out my VR experience, I had to send them this executable file and they probably wouldn't even have a headset to try it on. So that kind of stuff. But over the past year, there's been this thing that came out called WebVR, which, as the name kind of implies, lets you do VR experiences on the web. So you can go to a website and just like launch this VR experience. It's all running through JavaScript and, and, and WebGL, but it's running on your headset. So then you just kind of pick up your headset, put it on, and you're in this VR thing. So you don't need to worry about distributing stuff. And yeah, it just lives on the web. So you can also take advantage of different web APIs and just like the magic of the web and so on. So one of the coolest things to check out is stuff like A-Frame. It's, uh, it's a markup language similar to HTML, but it lets you build these kind of 3D scenes that are explorable in VR. And we do have like a little example up on the A-Frame site for, for a Shopify type demo where it's like you, you can go to the Shopify store and then you can just like from that store on the web, just kind of like if you have a VR headset, whether that's a Google Cardboard or whether it's an HTC Vive, you can launch that thing and have it just running natively within, within the headset. So that's something really, really cool to check out, all the stuff around WebVR. It is something that we're like really focused on right now at Shopify and because the web is such a powerful platform. And so we're trying to integrate WebVR and shopping um, into it. And so that's some of the, the great content you can look for on the web. Other content, I've really been enjoying the uh, Medium publication by one of the product managers here at Shopify. His name's Brandon Chu. And he, uh, he has this medium uh, publication called The Black Box of Product Management. He just writes really great stuff about product management and like how do you make product decisions. And it's helping me kind of come out of my tech bubble a bit, go into that kind of business side, go into that product manager side and just kind of figure out like, okay, well, how do I manage my time? How do I develop strategy and vision? How do I kind of reconcile the fact that I want to be doing coding all day long, but like really I need to like think a bit higher level than that. And, and so just great, great posts that he makes every so often. And I've just been really, really liking reading his stuff. That's awesome. I've actually uh, checked out quite a few of uh, Brandon's posts as well. And he's, uh, you know, he's an excellent writer and it's a really good resource. So we'll make sure that uh, we link to that so other people can check both of those things out uh, as well. So maybe just as a final note, do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? One of the mottos I always kind of live by is to optimize for stories. So kind of whatever I do in life, it's just like, well, whether it was a mistake or whether it was like, yeah, a ridiculous thing, it's like, what's the story out of it? And like, if it makes for a good story, then it's probably worth it. Um, but then the other one is just like, if you are working at a company, 
you can still be an entrepreneur. And if that, whatever you call it, whether that's entrepreneurship or whether you call it entrepreneurship, if you just like act like an owner, take a project that you're really passionate about and like see it through, like things will be pretty awesome. Absolutely. That's awesome. I couldn't think of a better way to end the episode. Daniel, man, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today about uh, all this cool stuff. It was amazing to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do it without your awesome support, so please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next week, and we hope you enjoy the show.